Hello ladies and gents and welcome to the next instalment of the Fulham Focus Q&A series. My name's Danny Boyer and I'm delighted to say joining me today is lifelong supporter and former club employee Paul Fault. Paul, it's a pleasure to speak to you. How you doing mate? And you Danny, thanks for having me on mate. It's uh, nice to speak to you and uh, all's going well, thank you. Yeah, top stuff mate. You contacted me to say you had plenty to say about your time at the club, all good experiences so I've been looking forward to it. Yeah. Yes, mate, I spent four years at the club, as you know, and uh, obviously I've been a, a lifeline. I'm 56 now, coming up 57, I can't believe that, it's been crazy even saying it, but, you know, I've been going down to the Koi Jump since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, so, uh, yeah, loads to tell, mate, loads to tell. Yeah, good stuff. Right, so we'll, we'll start off with you being a supporter, actually, so how did that come about? How did you become a Fulham supporter, and can you remember your first game? Granddad was a Fulham supporter. My granddad was uh, a disabled veteran from World War One, and um, when he came back from France, uh, Fulham was about the only thing that he really had in his life at that time. So, my grandfather was a devout Fulham supporter, and naturally, when my dad was born, they lived in uh, Bronze Art Road, which is just around the corner near Henry Compton. And um, my dad was born at number 22 uh, Bronze Art Road, and uh, he was a lifelong fan. Then obviously when I was, I think I was five or six, he took me to my first game down at the college. You know, my granddad holding one hand, my dad holding the other. We walked down Finley Street. I can still, to this day, if I close my eyes, I can still smell the hot dog stand and my first sight of Craven College. It stuck with me forever. It was like seeing Mecca, if you like. It was just unbelievable. That view you get when you walk down Finley Street and you see the cottage in front of you, it's just beautiful, isn't it? There's no other sight like it in the world, mate. It's something that you, you never grow out of. You know, you won't, once you've had that, you're Fulham for life. That's it. There's no going back. No, 100%. What was that first game then? Do you remember? I've looked it up and I believe it was very close to Christmas and I think it was Fulham versus Chelsea. In fact, I'm sure it was. And we drew two all. And I think it was 1967, 66-67. And from memory, we were 2-0 down at half-time and we drew the game two all. Um, that is my recollection. And, um, you know, obviously it's a bit ironic, really, my first game being against Chelsea. And um, at the end of the day, I went to school in Sutton, and I was the only former supporter in the school. Uh, they were all Chelsea, and I took dogs abuse. And it just made me even more sort of resolute in my passion. You know, my dad used to say, listen, son, we come from the, the best part of Fulham Road, you know. And people don't often understand my dislike of Chelsea, and I suppose it is a bit immature. But at the end of the day... I had a rough time at school being a Fulham supporter and, you know, it would have been very easy to have switched allegiances because I was pressured at school to switch allegiances, but I, I would never, ever have it. And uh, I used to go to school on, like, non-uniform days in the, what was then the best you could describe as a Fulham kit and, um, yeah, it used to lead to a few interesting moments after that. <laughs> you uh, set up the forum that was known as TFI, the Fulham Independent, uh, it's now in its new form known as TIFF, but that was all set up by you, wasn't it? I mean, first of all, what made you set up a forum? Well, it's a good one, that, mate, because I'll tell you what, it was 1997, I believe, 96, 97, and we was over at Toys R Us in Croydon and buying the kids some, some bits and pieces, and my wife said to me, what can I get you for Christmas? And I said, you know, I've always fancied a computer, but I wouldn't know how to use it. And Carl long story short, she said, well, let's get one and see how you get on. Within a few months, I'd found the internet, and um, there was very little about forum or very little about anything back then. 
Now, I started with the Fulham Independent, which was massively popular. I've still got a folder in my drawer here with all the original members, and there was hundreds of them. You know, I mean, God knows how many people were, were, were using the message board back then. You know, certainly a lot more, I think, than it is today, for some bizarre reason. Um, but that was a great period, and, 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 you know, I enjoyed it immensely. I got to meet a, a lot of people at Fulham, made a lot of friends, and, you know, the old adage about Fulham being a massive big family, yeah, that, it was so true back in those days. Uh, we was one big, massive family. Everyone knew everyone, really. I mean, what you say about there seems to be more people on message boards back then than there is now. I mean, I, I found that I was a moderator of a forum. I think that's probably down to all the avenues you can go down to find Fulham News now. You've got Twitter, Facebook, yeah, yeah. all that. Yeah, so it's, I don't think that people are as reliant on forums as they used to be. No, possibly not. I mean, back in the day, you know, the only place really for any Fulham news was TFI. But obviously, as you as you rightly say, there are all sorts of avenues these days. And I think that, you know, without getting into other subjects, there are certain people that will deliberately try and, you know, make one ball better than another, or they'll, they'll have friends on one board and people they don't perhaps feel are quite as friendly with them on another board. There's lots of reasons why. Um, I've been looking at TIF just recently, and, it, you know, it seems quite busy, but it's still not the, the, the past numbers that, that we had back in, you know, in the late 90s and the early sort of 2000s. You can still spark a good debate, though. I think people, you know, I've been guilty of it myself, Danny, to be fair, you know. I mean, you say things that once you post them, you think, oh, I shouldn't have really put that. Or, you know, yeah. but I, the one thing that I will always say, and I've got no, I've got nothing against anyone on any of the pools. We're all Fulham fans, you know. The only thing that sort of gets up my nose a little bit is I've never hid from anyone. I've always used my own name when I post anything. Um, and I think that when people come back on you using sort of different usernames, I, I do find that a bit cowardly, but I wouldn't really want to sort of pay too much attention. The mods do what they do. I mean, having moderated a board for a long time, it's, it can become almost like a full-time job, so I don't envy them. Yeah, no, I don't either. I'm glad I'm out of that. Right. You then go and, and work for the club, which is you know a dream come true, I'd, I'd imagine, for most Fulham fans. An internet manager, is that what it was? Well, that was my title. That was my original title. And it was, um, you know, I've never really told this story before. And, you know, for those that are involved in the club and around the club, and obviously a lot of lifelong fans, will, you know, some of the newer fans, obviously might, this might not mean so much, but those that were around... Back in the time, they will understand and know the people I'm going to talk about. Uh, Neil Rodford, I was sitting at, uh, at home, and Neil Rodford, our managing director at the time, he was the first MD that Mohamed Al had bought in after taking over the club. Um, Neil had seen the, the Fulham Independent Message Board, and, and the internet was really kind of in its infancy. And Neil was a very forward thinking guy, and he called me and said, Look, Paul, you know, he said, Why don't you come and work for the club that you clearly love? take care of our website, our internet, etc. And, um, you know, who better to have on board? So I went and had an interview with Neil and a gentleman called Mark Griffiths, who was at the time Mohamed Al-Fayed's right-hand man. Um, if you wanted to get to Mohamed Al-Fayed, you had to go through Mark first. Um, there was no two ways about that. Nobody saw Mohamed Al-Fayed without speaking to Mark Griffiths first. And Mark and Neil were at the interview. Uh, and we all hang off. Instantly. I mean, I've got to tell you, I mean, Mark Griffiths and Neil, Mark in particular, a typical public school boy, and what I would describe as like a, a bit of a naughty, jolly public school boy. You know, chalk and cheese get it off sometimes, and we did um, become very friendly with Mark and um, and obviously with Neil as my first boss at the club. And um, 
that was how the job started, and it really was just the start to us sort of a quite unusual path, really. Obviously, uh, when you work for the club, you you also had a lot of involvement with Gentleman Jim, who's someone I've got to know quite well over the last year or so. Yeah. What was your relationship like with him, and what was the roles with you working alongside each other? How did that work? Well, when when we was first able to start doing match day commentary, and when I think back at the quality of it, then it's a little bit embarrassing because obviously myself at first, and then me and Jim, we were working under you know technological constraints, if you like, which aren't anywhere near as fabulous as they are today. But Jim and I knew each other um, vaguely before I worked at the club. When I started up there doing the, um, the match day commentary, I said to Fulham, look, I know a guy who is he's out and out Fulham, he's like myself, um, he's a real good talker, he'd be great for match day commentary, he's a lovely fella, let's get him on board. So Jim came along, we started working together, I absolutely adore Jim as an individual, he's got a lovely family, proper, proper full of men, and um, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's different class than me, Jimmy's Jim. Yeah, oh, he certainly is. He's loyalty to Fulham, uh, and Jim and I are very similar sort of ages, and we went through this sim- a similar sort of upbringing, if you like. Um, Jim and I come from very similar backgrounds, and we, you know, we hear often, one of my lifetime, all-time favourite people. Oh, that's really nice to hear. Did you do, like, commentary uh, alongside each other? Like what he does now? commentated together, yeah. We was a team of double acts for probably, oh, I don't know, probably a good two years. We was a double act on the mic there um, at the college, and, you know, Jim would um, try and get involved in in, in anything and everything that I could, really, because the the only problem that I ever had when I worked at the club was that um, I was a fan, and I would always go the extra mile, whether I was being paid or whether I wasn't. It wasn't just a job to me, so, you know, when five o'clock came, and understandably, quite understandably, people that were not Fulham supporters would go home. For me, I wouldn't go home until every single T had been crossed and I had been died. I wanted everything perfect. And back then, it was so primitive in many respects. I remember taking season ticket renewals home uh, and writing out the envelopes by hand to try and help the ticket office. And, you know, we used to do all sorts of stuff. We used to muck in, but the club grew massively when when Mohamed Alfai came in the club grew massively and obviously we know what happened you know we we all know what magical time that was and um I got to know Mr Alfai really really well um and I'm proud to say that I mean Mr Alfai liked the fact that I was close to the supporters and and I don't know what everyone's perception of Mr Alfai is but he loves to be loved um and he likes to be liked and he's, he's a very kind individual I mean I saw him do a lot of things that were never publicised. I see him give lots of things away that would never get in the papers, um, the charities that he supported and some wonderful things that he'd done for underprivileged kids. And, and I was really, really impressed with his kind-heartedness. And, and I was introduced to him by Mark Griffiths as like the fans man, if you like, if you want to call it that. that that's how he described me. And he kind of took me into his heart, really. And, and we formed a relationship where... I suppose after all these years, you know, it's quite okay for me to say so. In many respects, I was his eyes and ears at the club for quite a long time. I mean, I didn't really report to anyone. Towards the end of my career, I didn't have to really report to anyone, even the managing director. I could go straight to the chairman if I needed to. He'd bring me up at my house um, and we'd, we'd have conversations. He trusted me. I trusted him. And, you know, it worked. It worked 
beautifully for all of us, really, um, and it was a wonderful period. To be honest, yeah, it comes as no surprise to me what you've said about all the stuff he's done behind the scenes. To me, I can see that that he was the kind of person that wanted to be loved. I think that's why he comes on the you know the pitch waving the scarf yeah. and that. Uh, he, he was a bit of a clan at times, but I think that was all part of the package, you know, to be loved. It wanted to be found funny. So, he's a character. He's a I'm character, exactly, and I think he's suited for them. He uh, I'm old enough to remember, you know, Tommy Trinder as a chairman, and, you know, no disrespect to him, but, you know, he was a bit of a musical joke, you know, and it, I don't really think that Tommy's persona was necessarily good for the club because Fulham was always treated as a, a bit of a joke football club, probably because of the association with what well, Tommy was a comedian, you know, a, a musical comedian. But Mr. Outside was, um, as far as I'm concerned, the, the greatest chairman that we ever had. Um, he'd done more for the club than anyone in our history. And to this day, his legacy lives on, really. I mean, I know some people felt perhaps that he sold us out at the end and, and things were going wrong and there were times where I didn't always agree with his decisions. But look, listen, this man put in millions and millions and millions of pounds of his own money. He has the right to have the final say. He's an old man now. He's, he's got to be in his late 80s. I think he had every right to sell the club when he did. You know, so we've had years and years and years of success in the Premier League to a Europa League final. Football was playing at Craven College. You know, players like Edwin van der Sar. Whoever thought we'd see a goalkeeper playing for Fulham like Edwin van der Sar, you know. Was, I mean, even when we had ups and downs with managers leaving, when Keegan went to England, you know, he, he didn't mess about. He brought in Roy Evans to take over temporary. Carl Heinz Riedler was there with him, um, you know, and obviously players like Coleman were brought along, you know. So, listen, I won't have anything bad said about the man. I knew him personally, and he was just, he was very good to me as an individual and to my family. And, you know, I know him as a very generous, kind person that loved the club. Any other stories you can tell us? Any other people that you was involved with at the club? Well, loads. I mean, you know, a couple of things that stand out in my mind is a night back in... Uh, we was on our way to Rochdale, and uh, there was myself, Lee Hoos, who was, um, I think Lee at the time was uh, the under-managing director, and Michael Fiddy, who was the managing director. The three of us travelled up to Rochdale in the car for a midweek game in the, in the Cup, and um, we were sort of about a third of the way there when we started hearing news of the planes flying into the buildings at New York, and, uh, and Lee was an American and panicking that, you know, he had family in New York and, you know, so things like that sticking in mind and, and that our trips to America when we travelled abroad, you know, with the team and, and, yeah, magnificent memories. Just being so close to the players that you, you sort of, wouldn't say I, I, I idolise because I'm not really that sort of person, but getting to know the players as individuals. Here's one thing I'd like to clear up. I, I was critical of Chris Coleman towards the end of his managerial career at Fulham. Um, and I knew Chris really well when we was at the club. We were friends from a professional basis and there was minor socialising together outside of ours. Uh, you know, we were mates. You know, I went to him in hospital when he was unwell with his, with his injury. And people accused me of being a bit of a Judas. You know, and I, I explained to him, look, I'm not turning on Chris. Chris is a person, he's a lovely man and I wish him all the best and, you know, I've got nothing against him as a person. But my number one love is Fulham Football Club. And I used to say, look, I don't care if my mum was in charge of Fulham. If she wasn't doing a good job, I'd say so. And, yeah. and I saw a lot of things going wrong. And, you know, that's why I was sort of vocal at the time about I wanted him replaced earlier than he was replaced. But people didn't necessarily understand the relationship I had, well, I had with the players. 
Uh, and that's a difficult one to approach when you're when you're talking to someone on a daily basis and you're having lunch with them in the canteen, sitting across the table with them, and uh, you consider yourselves friends. And then in your heart, you're thinking, yeah, you're my mate, but I don't want you playing Saturday. That's quite a tough one. Yeah, yeah it must be a strange environment to be in. You know, I'd love to have played to Fulham myself, but if, if I was given the chance to play on a Saturday, I'd have turned it down because I know I'm not good enough. That's the point I'm trying to say. You know, it's like it's about wanting to see Fulham win rather than full of news with people involved that you like. It doesn't work that way. You know, they're just custodians. All those players and people that we've spoken about, they've all gone. And, you know, the players in the team right now, there's some that I really like, but one day they'll be gone. The only real thing that matters to me is that full of win. You know, you're probably too young to remember Tony Curtis, but it's Jamie Lee Curtis's dad, you know, mega, mega famous guy. And he had this big 10-gallon American hat on. And um, he took his hat off and his wig came with it. <laughs> um, he, he was sitting at the table without a, a stitch of hair on his head and this wig sitting inside his hat and someone sort of nudged him and pointed out that he needed to put his, put his hat back on that always sticks in my mind but yeah we had a, we had a great time working at the club and um, Christian Damiano Roger Propo who were there under Tigana who was by the way a very private shy individual anyone that's interested in what John Tigana was like he was he was very clever to go on. He, he never really used to have a lot of interaction with the footballers. He used to go... His English wasn't brilliant. Um, and Christian Damiano, his right-hand man, who was the coach, um, everything would really go through Christian. So John would sort of stand on the touchline, watch the training, and when he wanted to get something over to the players, he would speak to Christian, and Christian would then relay Tigana's instructions to the players. But Christian Damiano, for those that remember him, what coach he was, and... Um, he was so enthusiastic, he used to come into the canteen at lunchtime. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd coach the staff, you know, he'd tell us how the game should be played and, you know, why the English game wasn't perhaps right and what the French do differently. And the things that I learned about football during that time, and, I, you know, my title was bloody internet manager, you know, and by the time I'd left Fulham, you kind of almost felt qualified to go and coach a, a low-level football side, you know. You'd picked up so much, and some of the people that, you know, I'd worked on Keegan, Tigana, Roy Evans, Bracewell. You know, it, it, you do pick up a lot of things. You, you, you watch, you learn. And, um, yeah, it's some, some clever, clever, clever football men. Which manager did you get on with the best? Paul Bracewell, without a doubt. He was a very guarded but quiet man. Um, didn't get on with Kevin Keegan at all. Um, didn't like Kevin Keegan one little bit. Why? Well, Kevin had had a bad experience with the internet. And anyone that's old enough to remember will probably know what that is. I'm not going to go through it, but when the internet was in its infancy, Kevin Keegan had a real bad experience with the internet. Right. So when I was introduced to Kevin as the club's new internet manager, he immediately saw me as a threat. Uh, and he actually barred me from the changing rooms um, and he said, look, you're not coming in the changing rooms. You're not going to speak to the players. And, and I went back to Neil, the managing director, and said, look, Neil, how can I interview players? How can I report back to the supporters if Kevin won't let me near the players. So he spoke to Keegan and it did change, but, but we never really saw eye to eye. He always saw me, for some bizarre reason, as the devil, probably because, you know, he, say, to be fair to the man, he had a bad experience with the internet and anything relating to the internet, he thought was bad. But we're going back a long time. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not talking about the internet in today's world. We're talking about the internet when Kevin Keegan only knew it as, as a vehicle that had said a lot of bad things about him. It was a different world back then, wasn't it? I, th I think there was a lot of people that weren't sure of the internet at that time. It was a different world. 
Um, Paul Bracewell came in. He was much more open to sort of like new media, if you like. And um, yeah, I liked Brace. He was a nice guy. Uh, again, you know, he wasn't someone that I thought was particularly great for the football club, but he wouldn't have been my choice. You know, he was really sort of pushed into that position um, and, and given the job for various reasons. But I would say that I got on okay with Tigana. I didn't get on well with Keegan. I got on very well with Bracewell. Very well with Roy Evans while he was there for a short period of time. Yeah, so they're generally all good guys. The players are all pretty great. Can't really have a bad word to say about any of the players. Some of them were better than others. Some of them were a bit bratty, if you like. But in general, a decent bunch of lads. It was such a strange pattern of choice of manager by Alfred, wasn't it? Because if you go through it, he seemed to make good decision, bad decision, good decision, bad decision. So he sat Mickey Adams, Ray Wilkins come in, probably not the right man. Then he brings in Keegan, and he gets us promoted. Then Bracewell, not the right man. Then Tagana. Then it's Coleman, sort of like an average choice. But then Sanchez, replaced by Hodgson. So it seemed to, to go back and forth. No, I can tell you why, really, because he used to listen to people. Mohammed would always listen to people around him, and, and he was quite a humble man, and he would be the first one to admit that he wasn't necessarily a football expert. I mean, the reason that Paul Bracewell got the job was because the players really wanted him to have the manager's job. And he was listening to the players, he was listening to Kevin Keegan, and basically, Alf really knew who Paul Bracewell was. You know, it he, he, he was a name that was put in front of him as the right man for the job, and he got it. Um, Sanchez, you know, I know a lot of people have given me stick for in the past. I mean, yes, he was a nightmare as a manager. He brought in some players that were the basis of a very good side. If you look at some of the players that Sanchez signed, we probably wouldn't have got to the Europa League final without those players. You know, he made some mistakes, but he did okay on the transfer market. I mean, Danny Murphy was, was probably one of our best signings of the last 15 years. Yeah, um, no, I think, I think that's a fair point. I never knew Roy, obviously that was long after my time, but I know one of your questions later on is going to be about my best ever game, but I'll tell you what, mate, let's get it out of the way now. I mean, for me, that semi-final against Hamburg will live with me for the rest of my life, um, that Dalton Gear a goal. Uh, and I've told this before, I have a nickname for my left foot, it's called my Gearer foot. And the reason is, is that when Zoltan scored that second goal, we were just going absolutely bonkers at the back of the Amherst end. And I slipped down a couple of steps and I don't know what I did, whether I tore a muscle or tore a whatever. But uh, to this day, every now and again, that foot, I get a limp and it's all from that injury. <laughs> yeah. You've got something to take away from it forever. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's just it's life, isn't it? That's life. But ultimately, you know, what, what an experience that was. I know that my son went to every home and away game. Um, that, Good um, effort. The cup run. Yeah, he was every home and away game. And, uh, you know, I didn't. I, I went to most of the home games. I think I went to a couple of the away games, obviously, including the final. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was a, a magic time. I've done my travelling over the years. I mean, I don't know how many games I've done. I couldn't even begin that. 
mentioned, but it, there's not many grounds up and down the country that I haven't been to over the years. I mean, Burnley's an absolute graveyard. I think I'll ever want to go there and get them a life, but, you know, there's not many grounds that I haven't been. Right. Why did you leave the club? Okay, so, well, being completely truthful with you, you know, I was at a stage in my career where I had other business interests, and working at Fulham was costing me a lot of money. I mean, I was losing money because my salary at Fulham, whilst it was good, and I was officially the second highest paid non-member of playing staff at the club. So behind Sherman, I was the highest paid member of the football club outside of the playing squad. So I was earning good money at Fulham. I was earning very good money, but I had business interests that were being neglected. And I went to Mohamed al on two occasions and said, look, it's time for me to go. I want to secure the future, my future, my family's future. I need to leave. And twice he talked me out of it. And the third time, really, I just said, look, I have to go. Uh, and he called me up to his office at, at Harrods on the fifth floor there, and we spent an hour together. And I won't embarrass him, but he gave my family a wonderful gift, and we parted as great friends. And do you know what? I've never seen him since. But we had a lovely relationship, and without going over old ground, he was a good man. Really nice to hear, mate. Yeah, I think one, one of the things as well is that when he lost Dodie in that car crash, a lot of Fulham fans were very, very kind to him. They showed him a lot of compassion. And he never forgot that, I don't think. And to this day, there will be a part of Mohamed al heart that is forever black and white, I think. I don't know the man, but I would like to think so. I feel that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, he cared passionately about results. I mean... I remember once we went to an away game, it was a pre-season friendly, and I can't even remember where it was now, but it was oh, somewhere down in France, and Michael Fiddy and I drove over there, we drove to the Channel Tunnel, and on the way back home, Mohamed Al-Fayed called Michael on his car phone and, and, and had a moan that no one had phoned him during the game with updates, and this was a friendly. He wanted updates every 15 or 20 minutes. That's really good. I mean, I, I didn't realise he was that into it. I thought it was a little bit for show when he waved on the pitch just because he wanted to be loved. I didn't know he was that into the, the playing side of it. So this is really good insight into Alfired. Well, what would be your all-time favourite eleven? Well, I'm glad you told me about 10 minutes before we was going to do this interview. So uh, basically, mate, I've got it down 11 players. They don't necessarily fit into a side, although they're not far out. Now, these are historical. They are my favourite players from, like, different periods and they mean things to me. So in goal, I'm going to go for Edwin van der Sar. Can't really get past Edwin van der Sar in goal. Two full-backs are going to be Steve Finham and George Cohen. Bobby Moore and Chris Coleman. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to have George Best and Lewis Baramorte out wide. We mouth water him. Yeah. Johnny Haynes and Zoltan Gera in the middle. Yeah. Zoltan Gera's got to be in there for that goal. I'm sorry, he's got to be there. And up front, I'm going to have Louis Sahar and Viv Busby. Yeah, good team. And Viv Busby obviously won't mean a lot to people of your age, but, you know... Well, FA Cup final, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Viv Busby is the name that I was writing on my school books. The bearded centre-forward that was getting the goals up at Goodison Park to take us through in the Cup. And, you know, there's a lot of sentimentality around that 1975 side. Mullery, another one of my sort of old favourites. Funny enough, there's something that comes to mind. There you go, Alan Mullery was a boyhood hero of mine. And later on, when I worked at the club, I interviewed him for a job. No. That, that felt bizarre. What was the job? Well, the job was, it was something to do with um, corporate dining. 
Uh, uh, it was something to do with the corporate side of the club. I can't remember exactly. So like hosting his own room or whatever. Something like that. It was me and Juliet Slot called me on her phone and she, with all due respect, she, she didn't know a lot about football and certainly not much about football's history. She wouldn't know that Alan Muller used to play for us. And she called me and said, "Oh, full piece." She said, "I've got someone coming in." She said, "He's an ex-player, Alan Mullery. Do you know of him?" And I think, <laughs> "Do you know of him?" Just, just a bit. She said, yeah. "She said, can you just interview him for this role?" And I said, "Well, I can do that." And I, I put the phone down. I thought, "What am I doing interviewing Alan Mullery?" That was a bit bizarre. And another very quick one that comes to my mind. And this was a great moment for me. Patrick Maskell was a program editor at the time. We had a call from someone, I can't remember, and they said, um, we've got George Best and Rodney Marsh coming down to the ground for an interview for the programme. And would you meet them both outside and walk them around the pitch and go through their memories of playing at Fulham? So Patrick and I said, yeah, that'd be lovely, because Patrick's a, a big Fulham fan, lifelong fan. So we went outside the college, we was waiting for him to turn up, all of a sudden this black taxi pulled up, and George Best and Rodney Marsh were out, and, and George Best put his hand out and said, oh, you know, Hi, I'm George Best, as, as if we didn't know. <laughs> but I've got to say that Rodney Marsh is a different kettle of fish. He wasn't so, uh, what's the right word? Not polite, he was polite, but he wasn't quite so humble as George. And we walked around the pitch and Best, he was genuinely interested that I'd watched his first goal for Fulham as a fan. And it, it was quite a surreal moment walking around Raven Cottage with those two sort of legends, if you like. But there were so many moments. I mean, there wasn't many players, footballers or managers that being involved with a club that you didn't get to meet back then. They were all just part of your job. You know, after a game on a Saturday, whether it be Bobby Robson or Sam Allardyce or whoever it was, you know, part of your job after the game was to, if not interview them, then certainly to be there during the press conference and have your mic under their nose, if you like, so that you were catching up with the opposition's take on the game that had just taken place. So basically the job was just a dream come true. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, before I forget, I've got to ask you, pie or pasty? Can't do it without that. Pie, mate, definitely a pie. Beef and onions, something like that, stain kidney, anything, as long as it's a meat pie. Can't be doing with them pasties, no, no, no. You're making me peckish. Might go and have a pie now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, well, it's a pleasure speaking to you, it really is. Keep up the good work, mate. It's good what you're doing, and um, I've certainly enjoyed listening to all the old players there and that, and uh, you're doing a good job, mate. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Tell a friend. <laughs> See you, mate. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye. Paul Thorpe there, talking about his experiences working and supporting Fulham. I'd like to thank Paul for taking the time to speak to me, and I wish him all the best with his future. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates when the latest Q&As will be released. There's loads more to come, and you can also subscribe to our audio Q&As podcast via iTunes or any other podcast app. Until then, my name's Danny Boyer. Really hope you enjoyed this one and thank you very much for listening.